Well, good morning. I want to welcome you again to Central, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of Christ. That's what we're all about, is seeking our world and our lives and our communities changed by the work of the Lord Jesus. If you're visiting us this morning, you may feel like you're stepping into the middle of a family meeting that Paul's having with the Galatian Christians. You're jumping in in the middle of chapter 4, and it may feel really confusing, and that's okay. We'll try to catch you up a little bit. We've been talking about being joined to God's family as sons of God, and there were some Christians from the Jerusalem church, the Judaizers, who had come to this region of Galatia, and they said, in order to be loved by God, you need to do things for God. Essentially, you need to become functionally Jewish. You need to be circumcised and keep the Sabbath and the dietary laws and all the rest. Essentially, they taught this, God helps those who help themselves. But Paul says, no. If that's what you believe, you do not believe the gospel. These things don't make God love us because it is in Christ that we are received by faith and trust in his work, not in our work. It's his grace that changes everything, including our lives, not our spiritual achievements. Paul has repeated the same story over and over and he tells it again this morning using the story of Hagar and Sarah Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21, we'll pray before we read God's Word. Holy Spirit, please come and open our eyes to perceive and behold Jesus in your Word. Pray that you would conform our lives to His as your followers. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Have you ever done something that you were afraid to tell your parents about? Some trouble came into your life, some hardship. There was some serious problem. You were just terrified to tell your parents. What ran through your mind as you were standing there afraid? I would like to propose that whatever ran through your mind tells you something about how you perceive your family. For example, some people think when this bad thing happens, oh no, I'm in such trouble, I can't let my dad find out. He's going to kill me. Other people have the exact same trouble and think, I am in huge trouble. I have to go tell my dad. He's the one who can help. You see the difference? 
One thinks there's this trouble in my life, I have to hide. And the other thinks there's trouble in my life, I need to run to my dad because he's able to help. And that says something about the family you think you have. Now, it could be just a faulty perception or it could be true. But it says something about the kind of family you perceive that you have, one that runs on performance. I'll be good, I'll keep my nose clean, I'll, I'll do everything I'm supposed to do, and then we're all good in the family, right? But I'm afraid to tell you when I mess up. Family of, prom, of performance, the other family runs on promise. God made us to be a family through thick or thin. No matter what happened, we'll stick together in love. What kind of family are you in? Paul here asks us the same question. Which family do you think you're in in the family of God? Is the family of God one of human performance, of self-reliance? Or is it a family based on on promise, on on promise reliance? What we're going to do through this passage, and I admit it's really confusing, but we're going to try to look for our family looking at the history and then the allegory and then by making it personal this morning. First, we'll start with the history. What happened? What is Paul talking about? Well, in verse 22, he takes us back to the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. He takes us to Genesis 15 and 16 to 21. Takes us back to the fact that Abraham had two sons by two different women, Hagar, the slave who gave birth to Ishmael, and Sarah, his wife, the free, who had Isaac, one dad, two mothers, two sons. If you recall the way that that story in Genesis goes, God made a promise to Abraham when he was 75 years old and Sarah was barren and he said, I will make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He made that promise and he made a covenant bond in blood to keep that promise. But Abraham and Sarah looked at their lives and looked at their bodies and thought, we're getting a little too old for kids. God, I think maybe you need some help on this one. We're not getting any younger. So in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah come up with a plan together. They turn to Hagar, who was a slave in their household, and said, Abraham, you're going to have a child with Hagar, with her. Now, that practice, you have to know, was legal in their culture. Both the slavery and the enslaved mistress having a child, that was legal in that culture, but it was not God's design. And so they took matters into their own hands and Abraham turned to Hagar and they birthed a son, which Paul says in verse 23, was born according to the flesh, according to nature. They thought if God's too slow to keep his promise to provide this son, we know how to get a son out of Hagar. But it wasn't God's plan. It seemed impossible to them, and yet God waited more years. In Genesis 21, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was over 90, and Isaac was born as a son of the promise, verse 23. It was God's work, God's miraculous provision, bringing life out of a dead womb, as the Apostle Paul says. This was the promised son. God did keep his promise. He gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, and it was through Isaac that the covenant would go, God's faithful family of salvation. He was the son of an exceptional, supernatural promise. The history is one dad two moms, two sons, two families, one a slave by self-reliance and the other free according to the promise. Which family are you in? The family of performance or the family of promise? 
But let's look at the allegory, how Paul uses the story here. These are historical events. They really happened, but Paul says there's a spiritual significance to them. That's what he means in verse 24 by allegory. There's a deeper spiritual meaning to these events of history. He says they're two sons, and he sets them opposite with one another and calls them two covenants in verse 24. He's saying these two women represent two different ways to approach God, two deals with God, if you were. The two sons stand for two different ways to live, relying on myself and my power and my ability and my ingenuity, or relying on God's promise. Two different ways to live in this world. And then he spells it out in verses 24 and 25. Hagar is Mount Sinai. Her child is a child of slavery and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. But Sarah was a free woman and birthed Isaac from Jerusalem from above, meaning where Jesus is. Now that may all seem really confusing to us. But if you were a Judaizer, if you were in that group from Jerusalem that came to Galatia, this is the point in the meeting, the church meeting, where you stand up and you storm out furious. Why? Because Paul reversed. He reversed what the self-righteous Judaizers thought about their place in the story. They thought they were the rightful children of Sarah. They thought they were the fruit of God's covenant promise. And all these Gentiles, everybody else who's not Jewish and not participating in the circumcision and dietary laws and all the rest, all the rest of you are illegitimate, slaves of idolatry, children of Hagar. That's what they thought. But Paul flipped it around and said, no, you who've come from present Jerusalem. Did you notice that in verse 25? From present Jerusalem. You who've come from there, those who rely on your obedience and your circumcision and ceremonies and all the rest, you are the ones who are the illegitimate children of slavery. And the Gentiles, those who have no connection with God other than through faith, all they had is trust in the promise of God. That's all they had. And God says, that's what you need. These children of the promise These Gentiles who had nothing to hang on to but God's promise were the real children of freedom of the heavenly Jerusalem in verse 26 where Jesus is. Now, why was that such a big deal and why? how was Paul using this story? I'm gonna make this allegory as simple as I can make it for you. The Judaizers thought this, you ready? Faith in Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah, he's come. You put your faith in him plus you add to it your obedience to the law. So faith plus obedience equals salvation. That's what the Judaizers taught. You need faith, but you also need to perform your duty to the Lord. You need to obey. And if you have faith in Jesus and obedience together, then that equals salvation. It's really a religion of self-reliance, Paul is saying. It all depends on how obedient you are. But he says, no, 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 that's, that's slavery. And that can't give anyone life. Obedience is on the wrong side of the equation. Paul says the gospel is this, faith in Jesus alone. Trust and reliance upon Christ alone equals salvation plus obedience to God's word. When we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ and we know that we're favored by God, loved by God through Christ, then it gives us the gift of salvation and the Holy Spirit begins to help us to obey. But not in order to make God love us. We obey because God already loves us. 
Salvation, you see, only comes through faith in that promised one, the the Lord Jesus Christ, who was obedient for us and was crucified for us. It doesn't come by what we do or our level of obedience. The gospel proclaims Christ performed for us and we trust in his performance. We don't go out and try to attain God's favor by being good enough for God, but we receive righteousness. We receive blessing through God giving us a supernatural promise in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. These are two paths, two ways to look at life, self-reliance or promise reliance. Which family are you in? John Wesley the founder of Methodism writes that he, he was converted on May 24th, 1738. And that's an amazing date because he had been a missionary for years by then. He had founded churches, he had founded orphanages, he had done incredible things for God and yet he wrote in his diary, he did not know God. But he met this Moravian pastor who asked him, do you know Jesus? And Wesley's answer was, I know that he's the savior of the world. But the man pressed and he said, yes, but do you know that he died to save you? Wesley went home that day stirred. And he noticed a difference between himself and men like this Moravian pastor whom he had met. And he wrote this in his diary. Are they versed in the science of divinity? I too have studied it many years. Are they plenteous in alms? Behold, I give all I have to feed the poor. Are they willing to suffer for their brethren? I've thrown up my friends, my reputation, ease and country. I've given my body to be devoured by the deep, parched up with the heat, consumed by toil and weariness. But then he asks a question. Does all this make me acceptable to God? Does all of this duty make me acceptable to God? Because he continued to write, all these things I've done and yet I don't have peace with God. It felt to him like all of his religious duties were imprisoning him in this life of performance. And he never had a sense of when was it enough? How long do I have to keep it up, God? How long do I have to continue to prove myself to you? When have I done enough? Maybe you're in a similar place today. Maybe your family, as as long as you can care to remember, have been members of the church. Maybe your mother taught Sunday school. Your father served on this committee and that committee. Maybe you've done that yourself. You've tried to live a really good life as the Bible calls you to. But friend, if you rely on that to make you acceptable to God, it will not work. How can you ever know when you've done enough to satisfy a holy God? If your life before the Lord is through a balance sheet, you're in the wrong family. We are saved only by the promise. Christ is the one who struck the bargain. Christ is the one who was obedient for us. Christ suffered for us. Christ died on the cross for us as a sacrifice for all of our sin. All of our penalty has been paid by Jesus. He was raised from the dead in victory over it all. And Christ secures our favor before God by the promise. We need to repent, not only of all the bad things that we've done in our lives, the things that we know are sinful, but the truth of the scriptures are that we also need to uh, to repent of our goodness. 
All of our attempts to be good enough for God, thinking that I can be good and earn your favor, the Bible would call you to repent because our goodness isn't enough. It's only trust in a crucified and risen Christ that offers us favor as sons of God. On that night of May 24, 1738, Wesley being stirred by this question from this Moravian pastor met with some of his friends and his friends shared with him John, Christ's performance becomes your standing before God. And he trusted him. He trusted God in his grace. He trusted the promise of Christ for him. And he lived the rest of his life with that doctrine. It's a great doctrine to live by. Christ for me. It's also a good doctrine to die with. On his deathbed, Wesley said, what do I have to trust for my salvation? said, I can see nothing that I've done or suffered that even bear looking at. I have no other plea than this. I am the chief of sinners, but Jesus died for me. That's the sound of the family of promise. Which family are you in? Let's make this personal for just a moment. That, that promise that has been given to us Leaves us with a sense of freedom, Paul says in verse 31. We are children of freedom, and yet we know that that freedom in Christ will be met with persecution, he says in verse 29. Whenever that gospel of God's grace is preached and believed, some people will try to prevent its spread, either through confusion or through contradiction. And I think one of the devil's most powerful strategies is to work in concert with our own self-righteous hearts that want to claim, I have something to contribute to my salvation. Surely there's something in me that draws God toward me. Toward me. And if the devil can distract you from God's grace that moves toward sinners, then the devil's done his job. Let's make it personal. By the power of the Spirit, ask the Lord to help you not to live as though what you do earns God's love, draws God toward you and and earns God's favor, but help the Spirit believe that you already have it through Christ and so therefore serve Him in gratitude. We serve in gratitude for what we've received from Christ rather than try to steal something or grasp something from a stingy God who only gives it to the people who are good enough. Ask the Spirit to help. You live in freedom of gratitude. Take one more step. Ask the Spirit to help you cast aside self-reliance, as Paul says in verse 30. Cast aside the slave woman and her child and instead live for his kingdom purposes. Turn away from your own strategies and deeds and try to help God out. Now, that doesn't mean we'd stop striving for holiness, but it means that we strive in his power for his purposes in our lives rather than advancing my own purpose. For example, when we live for performance, Jesus says that we actually lose what's best in joy giving about the Christian life. When we live for performance, we lose the ability to truly love and sacrifice for others. And here's how. When we live that way for performance, the ultimate measure of my success is what I can make of myself, right? what I can make out of my life, the, the fruit of my labors, how, how, what I can get out of all of my hard work. But Jesus calls us to something much bigger and deeper than that. He calls us to a life of self-sacrifice. 
Jesus calls us to a life of taking up my cross every day. But if my conception of success in this life is making myself look good, then I'm probably not going to be willing to sacrifice what's important to me in order to serve someone else. But that's the life Jesus calls us to. Because so often what is not best for me, what is not best for my self-advancement is exactly where Jesus calls me to step into some place where it's best for someone else, love for someone else, sacrifice for someone else, advantage to someone else, even at my own expense. That's the life of sacrifice Jesus calls us to live. But if I live in that family of performance, I'll never be willing to walk in sacrifice. I'll never be willing to give up what's important to me in order to pursue what's a blessing to you. But living according to the promise gives us freedom to live sacrificially. Living according to the promise gives us the freedom to widen our hearts to love and serve patiently exasperating people around me. Everybody has exasperating people. I mean, we can be honest about that. If you know someone, raise your hand, right? It might be yourself, you know? (laughs) The freedom to love and patiently serve exasperating people isn't going to come from how good can I make myself look. It comes from the promise that the Lord loved me when I was exasperating. The Lord pursued me when I was captured in all of my sin. The promise will enable us to serve in obscurity. If I have to be recognized for everything I do, if I've got to look good, if I have to be recognized for every bit of my service, am I really going to be willing to take a seat to serve behind the scenes? Maybe where Jesus calls me to serve, where nobody sees, nobody notices, nobody ever takes note. It's the promise that will enable us to serve behind the scenes. It's the promise that will enable us to pray for, give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For as you forgive me my sin, Lord, would you enable me to forgive the sin of those who sin against me? See how opposite that is from our world? Our world operates on the performance of payback. Payback makes the world go round. Think of all the movies that glorify vengeance in our culture right now. But walking with Jesus, according to the promise, fuels forgiveness. Walking with Jesus, according to the promise, fuels mercy, even when it costs me revoking payback. And believing in the power of forgiveness, the power of mercy, the power of the cross to bring life and change into this world. You're never going to get there by looking at life through the lens of performance. But by the promise, the Lord can enable you to serve and love and offer mercy even when it costs you something. You see, hope is kept alive Only by God's promise, especially when the world is is turned upside down by all the hardship that we face. It's hope that's birthed, that promise births in us, that Paul says from the book of Romans that he has the power of to, to make a dead womb like Sarah's alive again. He has the power to make spiritually dead sinners alive in Christ. He has the power to set free those who are condemned and enslaved to sin through the power of the cross. He has the power to enable us to live with love and sacrifice through his resurrection life within us right now. He can do all of that. And our self-reliance can do none of it. 
Whose family are you in? I wonder if there's someone in your life that seems beyond your ability to help. You've tried and it's just not working. Maybe it's you. And you desperately see a need for a miracle to be at work, for God to intervene. Friends, hope thrives when we turn away from our puny self-reliance and have a living trust in the God of the supernatural, the God who has the power to bring dead people to life, the God who has enabled us to follow him when the world says, follow yourself. Which family are you in? When your problem's too big, when your hole's too deep, when your sin's too entrenched, when you've made too big a mess of your life, sons and daughters of the promise can say, I'm in a huge mess. I can't handle it. I have to tell my father. I have to tell my heavenly father because he loves me and will never let me go. Which family are you in today? Let's pray. Father, we desperately need you. We need your miraculous hand of blessing. We need your life-giving work in our own lives. We need it in our city. We need it in our church. We need it in our world. Lord, would you move? Would you show us, Lord, that we are children of your promise? Would you give us that confidence and shape our lives around the promise rather than living according to performance or what the world sees in me or thinks about me? Enable us to follow Jesus by the power of the Spirit, giving us the promise of a risen Christ. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.